Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Napa know-how. Get all the quality parts you need at your locally owned Napa. Because right now, when you order from Napa online, you can pick up curbside at your local store in just 30 minutes. Or get your order delivered direct to your door with free one-day shipping and over 160,000 quality parts when you spend $35 or more. Quality parts delivered quickly and safely. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating stores, standard ground shipping and exclusions apply. It's that little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, but I said Mr. Worldwide, and you already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken, and you know, that's fire. Now, Babo, you know that you can get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now, that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on negative to positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from negative to positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. Welcome to a brand new episode of The Witching Hour, a very exciting episode because you got me and Haley here as always, but we are also joined by Greg Nicotero this week and brace yourself, my friend, because we have so many questions about so many things. And of course, a big (laughs) one is Creepshow, which is now available on Shudder. And the reason why we're celebrating the show right now is because soon you're going to be able to own it. I believe the new date is June 2nd. You can own season yes. one of Creep Show on DVD, DVD, Blu-ray, and Steelbook. So, Yay, lots correct. of options. Do check it out. Um, we often like to just start at the beginning on Witching Hour. So, I do know that Jaws was a very big inspiration for you. But I am curious, was there any particular moment when you realized you actually had the skill set to get into this kind of work? Well... Hmm. That's a crazy question. Cause you know, I, I feel like I grew up at the perfect time in terms of genre movies and, and special effects. Cause I loved time machine and horror of Dracula, all those cool Gothic movies. And I thought for a while I wanted to do miniatures. Like I remember watching, you know, like Star Trek and towering Inferno and Poseidon adventure. And I loved all the model making and stuff. And I think it was Jaws and then later Dawn of the Dead when I kind of went, wait a minute, there's so much out there that I would love to, you know, get my hand into. I didn't really even know that this was going to be the career path that I took until George Romero hired me on Day of the Dead as literally as a production assistant. And I had met Tom Savini already when I visited the set of Creepshow and I sort of watched him build everything. So I was there when he was building Fluffy and he was like putting the tubes in the mouth so that the drool would come out. So back then, you know, if you really were interested in special effects and creatures, you had to work at it. You know, you had to buy the magazines and you had to read everything that you could and find as much as you could. 
out about, you know, the technique. So I learned about Jack Pierce and then, you know, of course, Dick Smith and then Savini and Rick Baker and Rob Oteen. So it was really through osmosis that you that you kind of fell in love with it. So I never thought about it as like, oh, this is where I'm going to land. But uh, because George and Tom gave me this great opportunity, I, I found myself in Los Angeles, you know, within a year and a half working for Stan Winston. And it was pretty exciting. To kind of follow up on that, do you remember – was there a first uh, effect that you made, whether it was on a movie or something you made in your own workshop, that you were like, oh, I just made something really cool that's only mine? Well, you know, I think Evil Dead 2 was probably the movie that, first of all, it was the first movie that Bob Kurtzman and Howard Berger and I really collaborated on um, together. Uh, we worked for another guy at the time, but that movie was the one movie that made us realize that we each brought a different skill set to the table. So there were a lot of things that I had worked on that I was excited to be a part of, like Evil Dead 2, Day of the Dead, because they were sequels to movies that were really, really important to me. But in terms of like moments on set, like I remember doing Sin City and we had done Mickey Rourke's Marv makeup and he came to set for the first time and he had the leather duster and he had the wife beater t-shirt and the boots and the cross. And when he walked on set, he walked up to Frank Miller who had created the character in the graphic novel. And Frank Miller literally backed away. Like, I think he got freaked out. Like he was like, that's the guy that I wrote all of these horrible comics about for so many years and now he's physically walking towards him. And I remember seeing Frank Miller react and I will never forget that because I thought, wow, that's pretty powerful that between Mickey's presence and what we were able to create um, really made a, made a big impact. What's something that you do that isn't necessarily super flashy on screen, like not a major gore effect or an elaborate creature, but something that's really important to your craft that you don't think gets the love and attention it deserves? Well, I would probably say a good portion of how we made these unique transitions uh, in, in our company was because we did fake animals. Like in the mid 80s, and into late 80s, there were a lot of movies that we worked on, like Dances with Wolves and City Slickers, uh, things that you wouldn't necessarily equate special effects makeup to. And one of them was Dances with Wolves. And we made fake buffalo for the big buffalo hunt. And Dances with Wolves was such a successful film that everybody wanted to know how they did certain aspects of it. And the buffaloes was one of the was one of the things that people were really curious about. In the front of the shop, I have photos. We built this 50-foot-long trench with a, with a buffalo sitting on a little cart. And there was a shot where Kevin Costner comes riding up next to the buffalo and shoots at it, and then the buffalo would get triggered and fly in the air. So I have these photos of Kevin riding up full speed, and when he pulls the trigger... The buffalo goes one way and he went flying off of his horse. And fortunately, he didn't get hurt. But 
there were so many little things like that that we had done that if you, if you didn't know that that it was built by a company like mine you would it, you would just assume that somehow or another they figured out a way to do it with real animals where are you right now like what what room <laughs> in your home is this um I'm actually at uh, I'm I drove to K and B this morning for this. So this is my this is my <laughs> office at the studio. And uh, you know, there's we're we're you know slowly trying to figure out a way to you know, we're disinfecting the studio and we're kind of doing a little overhaul and cleaning and I wouldn't be surprised if you had all that stuff, just home sweet home and you weren't at the office right now. But then I noticed it, the lighting grid, I guess, above you. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I know. I, I know. Well, listen, I do have stuff like this at my house as well. But uh, I've been, you know, we're kind of going through and doing a little bit of house cleaning at the shop, which we haven't done since Walking Dead started 11 years ago. So. Yeah. There's and it's been a really unique sort of trip down memory lane to find to see molds from movies that we did. Like I just looked at Marv's makeup from Sin City. I was looking at the makeup mold from Bubba Hotep. And it's interesting because if you really think about it, you'll look at a mold and then you'll think, man, you know, I remember we got the script and we talked to the directors and then we figured out how to do it. And then we live cast the actor. And there's hundreds and hundreds of hours that go into designing and building any sort of special effect makeup. And now we're at a point where like, Oh, well that's kind of all that's left now is this little, this little mold. So it's, it's been kind of, you know, it's been a little, it's been a little sad for me to kind of look at so many things. Like I was seeing my handwriting on molds from like 2001 or 1999. And man, like, man, that was, feels like it was a lifetime ago, you know, might feel that way, but like add it all up and how many people just you, you influenced and how many people are kind of taking your work and running with it now and how many movies it's like the movies that I can't believe I haven't realized how many of the movies that were so important to me growing up that you've had a hand in and I already warned Haley I was going to bring this up, but what specifically did you do on Scream? Because that is that's my second favorite movie of all time. Oh. Well, we we did the Drew Barrymore death, and then I went. Uh, so we shot some of it here in LA, and then we shot most of it up in outside of Santa Cruz. And I went for the scene where Rose McGowan gets her head crushed in the garage door. <clears throat> so uh, so we did a dump. We had a dummy head of Rose. And I remember being in the garage with Wes and Nick Mustandria, the first AD. You know, we had done a lot of movies. I originally met Wes Craven through a friend, and that's how we got hired on People Under the Stairs. And then we did all of Wes's movies subsequently after that. And we even sculpted the mask at one point because they wanted to use a specific type of mask and then we did a couple sculptures and i think they found one that they ended up licensing um and using for the movie but you know that was the big you know the drew barrymore gutted body at the beginning i remember we we did that too slightly iconic (laughs) well it, it is kind of it is kind of interesting to sort of go back because you know i'm so in the middle of you know between walking dead and creep show that even I sometimes 
forget some of the things you know that we've done and and that we've been a part of and that have like you said have influenced and inspired people and it really does make me proud that we've been able to after so many years still have a a, a voice in in the genre and you know the the cool like you know Josh Brolin's makeups from Grindhouse like all the girls in that scene in Grindhouse where all the girls get killed in the car the car crash with Kurt Russell you know we we I looked through all those molds yesterday and I thought about you know when we got the script you know Quentin was kind of like how would how would you do this scene you know Quentin right the way he writes things he doesn't really think specifically in terms of shots he just gets he writes the tone and the intent and then with grindhouse i remember sort of translating like oh well then the script says that this girl gets her face ripped off the tire and this girl's leg rips off so we shot all these tests and then i edited them together and sent them to quentin so that he could look at what the tests were in terms of how i had interpreted what he wanted to do and he's like yeah that looks great and we spent three days you know, doing all those gags and all those bodies. So I found like Jordan Ladd's body and uh, Sydney Pollock's body and uh, Zoe Bell. You know, I mean, we still have all those molds of all those pieces. Do you, having worked with so many different types of filmmakers over the years and having stepped into directing yourself, do you prefer to work with a director who leaves more open to interpretation for you or who is very specific and sort of rigid and knows exactly what they want from you? Well, that's a great question because every director is different, you know, and I think a lot of times like Sam Raimi, as an example, when we did Army of Darkness, there's literally a book about that thick of storyboards. Like Sam drew every single camera angle. So we'd get on set and they would have the storyboards out and we're like, okay, tonight we're shooting these seven or eight different shots. Um, and I always felt like that was a great visual guide to be able to know exactly where the camera is going to go and what the shot will be. And then you have other directors who tend to be more organic where they might not know where the camera will be until they block the scene. And because, you know, one of the actors might come in and go, Oh, well, I wouldn't walk over there. I would walk over there and I would sit over here. And there's a really unique process in terms of it, a scene growing when you collaborate with the actors and when you rehearse it. So one of the things that I took away from uh, all of the years of doing effects and then stepping into the director's chair was my job as an effects artist was to allow the director to have the freedom to shoot whatever he wants to shoot. However, he would, however he would, wherever he would want to put the camera. So if he decided on the day, Oh, you know what? I think I'm going to shoot it from over here. Now um, that really changed the way that I built creature effects because I realize that a director, if you're meeting with a director a year before you shoot a scene, he might not even know what the set looks like yet. So you have to build things that are uh, organic enough that, the, that it becomes part of the scene and that you're not locked into shooting something a specific way because of the special effects. So I really felt that that was something that I took away from directing and was able to put it into how I designed 
creature work and special effects work from Django Unchained onward. So that was nine years ago. You've done such a wide variety of things thus far, but do you still have that kind of white whale of a creature or of a gore effect that you always wanted to do but still haven't? Um, you know, werewolf transformations are always super cool and very fun. And, you know, we did some werewolves on uh, on Creepshow for season one, which was really fun because we were able to pay tribute to the Rob O'Teen Howling Werewolf and the American Werewolf in London Werewolf. And I was a teenage werewolf. You know, we were able to sort of pay tribute to those classic, iconic movie werewolves. Um, but, you know, in terms of the one thing that I, I think that was something that I had always wanted to do. Um, season two of Creepshow, you know, we were one day away from filming uh, when this giant button came, giant finger came in and pushed this huge pause button. Um, and we started building a lot of really cool, fun stuff. I feel like I took everything I learned from season one of Creepshow and applied it into what I wanted to see out of season two. Uh, I've just kind of loosened up a little bit in terms of the kind of stories I wanted to tell and, and the material. So there's some really outrageous alien stuff and some creature stuff in season two that I just like the idea of, you know, we're forced to figure out how to do it practically because the show's a limited budget and we don't have a lot of CGI money. So we have to, we're forced to be creative and we're forced to figure out ways to come up with uh, how we're going to do things practically. And that to me is really why we all got into the business. You know, all those movies in the eighties, you know, the thing and, and uh, creep show and, you know, there was so much creativity in just allowing their imagination to run wild. And I really want that again. I don't want to be able to just use a computer to fix something or or just let that happen. I think when there's practical creature effects to be done, um, it really just it, it just makes the uh, it really waters the seeds of creativity. Please tell me you have Bob somewhere in that facility as a matter of fact <laughs> well, here's the thing so, that makes now, me so happy we had two bobs because we had a we had a full-size puppet this is actually the stop-motion puppet because we didn't we didn't have cgi so this is the he you know he's got all his little movements he can open his mouth Whoop. and uh, he's he's holding a pen right now but you know, one of the things that was fun about this was we actually built an armature and did it did it stop motion. So this is the actual stop motion puppet for Bob. That is He's so cute. He's so cute. I feel like the reaction to that segment shouldn't have been I want a Bob of my own, but I, I kinda do. Well, you know, I that was that was the first story that we that we optioned from my friend David Scow. And when I read the story, I was like, well, I want to direct this one. I'm really, I like it that it's weird and it's funny and he talks to the camera and all this kooky stuff. And, you know, in the, in the story, he's more of a dragon. And I saw this design actually online. There was a Spanish uh, illustrator concept artist named Franco Carlissimo 
And I saw the piece of art online and I sent him an email and said, Hey, my name is Greg Nicotero. Um, I'm working on the show and I really like your design and I would like to license it from you and hire you to be a designer of that creature. And the response back was, wait, Greg Nicotero, like walking dead. Like he kind of, he kind of <laughs> got really as excited as I was to work with him. Um, he was really excited about it. And, uh, you know, and then DJ Qualls who did a great job. Um, and there's no zombies in it. I really wanted to direct on Creepshow. I wanted to direct something that was very different than the stuff I'd been doing on Walking Dead. So I was really excited about in Grey Matter, like the relationship between um, Richie uh, and and uh, his son and the emotion there. And then, of course, I had Giancarlo and Tobin and Adrian Barbeau. And so I really felt like I was able to to kind of stretch my wings as a director a little bit, too. You were going about looking at season two and what you wanted to do moving forward because this show offers such a just like kind of endless wealth of opportunity to like flex yeah. your muscles as a storyteller, as a, an effects practitioner. What do you have? Let me rephrase. Was it a situation where you were able to be like, well, I haven't done this in a really long time and I'd like to make this kind of creature. And then you sought out a story to fit that. Well, there, there's one particular story that I posted a video, uh, or I posted a photo on my Instagram of this giant tarantula that we had built uh, for one particular episode of, uh, episode of Creepshow in season two. And I thought, you know, I always love those giant bug movies and giant rat movies like Food of the Gods and uh, so, and I'm terrified of spiders. So we built this tarantula puppet. It's in the other room. Maybe we'll walk over before we're done and we'll look at it. Um, but it was really like, I can't even get in the same room with it because it kind of freaks me out a little bit. So when the writer had pitched me the story, mm-hmm. I kind of took it and went, oh, well, if we're going to do giant bugs, we can do giant this and giant that. And um, so I really did in that particular instance I was sort of sparked by an idea in the script and went, well, if we're going to do it, we should do this and we should do that and we should do this. And it's kind of um, been really fun. But the stories, they're really different this season. You know, I, I read a lot of short stories and I, um, and I even reached out to a couple of my friends and said, hey, you know, pitch me some ideas. And we went back to a couple of the writers from season one. But there's a few stories in season two that are really, really personal to me you know there's one uh called model kid that was written by john esposito who wrote night of the paw last year and it's about a young kid in the 70s who builds monster models and you know there's a very distinct possibility that somebody might um bully him or threaten him so he sends away for a model of them so that he can build it and put it next to the other models and then they'll ah. um so it's really you know i mean i really love I think for me, the good gauge of any story is like if I read it and I I see it and I want to film it myself. So it's been tricky because there's a lot of episodes of this season that I'm like, I want to shoot that one. I want to shoot that one, too. It's really fun. And I really can see the stories. And so I'm super excited. I'm like anxious to start filming again. 
anxious for you to start filming too. I really fell hard for the first season. And I feel like what you were just describing is why it feels so special. Cause you can feel the passion that you not only have for the stories, but also with the practical creatures that you bring to life too. But going back to practical versus digital, I am curious, is there any particular part of digital effects and creature making that you have really embraced? And you say, even though I prefer practical, prefer to reach out and touch it, I don't know if I'd be able to keep getting bigger and bigger without this specific tool. Well, listen, I mean, the truth of the matter is practical special effects makeup is a fantastic tool in any filmmaker's arsenal, as is visual effects. You know, I think ultimately my job has always been, you know, you provide the filmmakers with uh, a, a myriad of tools and it's how they use them. And, you know, watching Jurassic Park and looking at how they were able to integrate a full-size animatronic dinosaur with CGI really changed everything for me. So there are instances where, yeah, you know, I mean, I I do feel like practical makeup effects is, is perfectly suited. And I do think that there are instances when digital effects, you know, at the end of Grey Matter, when Richie starts to transform into that big giant, gelatinous creature that you know i mean that was sort of my homage to john carpenter and the thing where he's in the hallway and he starts smashing the roof and he grows bigger and bigger you know like we couldn't have done that we couldn't have done that practically there would have been no way to do that to accomplish the same effect so i do love visual effects and digital effects and i think that they have a tremendous value um but I also think in the world of Creepshow, there's something nostalgic about the practical element of it, which makes it, 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 it kind of feels comfortable. You know, it kind of, it, it sort of harkens back to that age in the, you know, in the mid eighties and nineties when everything was, you know, everything was, was practical and you'd have to sit down and figure out how to do it. My mom. She loves The Walking Dead, but she has spent my entire life hating that I watch horror movies. And I don't understand because you don't you don't hold back on the gore. You really go for it. And she loves to see those practical effects. So first of all, thank you for making my mom finally understand the appeal of zombies. But second of all, why do you think that is that so many people who aren't these like diehard horror fans just love to see the zombies on that show? Well, you know, it's all about that survival story and the characters that Frank Darabont created when they did the show initially. You know, um, there was somebody to relate to. Every single character could relate to Rick or Shane or Laurie or Daryl or Carl. There was something in there for everybody. And all great genre material is you have to find somebody that you can identify with in the story so it puts you in there with them and next to them. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, what do I attribute the success of Walking Dead to? And I mean, I think obviously the great characters, the the uh, the storytelling, that kind of um, um, all the great the, the the great sort of just backstory. But what I also think is interesting is. Zombie, the zombie subculture made a, a huge leap forward with the advent of video games. Like as soon as 
Resident Evil and House of the Dead and all these video games came out, all of a sudden people of a younger generation were involved and excited about that, you know, third person shooter game. You could actually shoot your own zombies on the game. And I remember in like two, 1998, 97 or 98, I was playing Resident Evil. There was like a 10 minute little movie before the game even started. And I thought, damn, you know, they're making little animated zombie movies. So the fact that, you, you you take what's great about the zombie genre and then you take what's great about um, this ensemble cast that Frank Darabont made his staple between Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile and the Mist. Frank knew how to put these amazing ensemble uh, characters and, and, and storylines together. So he got the graphic novel that Robert Kirkman wrote and did an amazing job. And and it had something for everyone. And I think the fact that Rick Grimes was sort of an average, everyday kind of guy that you could relate to, you wanted to go on the journey with him. Did you have a member of the ensemble? I mean, I don't want you to play favorites, but I kind of do. Do you have a member of the ensemble that you relate to the most that you, as a as a fan, too, found that in with? Um, you know, I always love Glenn. I thought Stephen Young. I thought Stephen Young, his performance of Glenn. Glenn, always to me, signified a bit of innocence, a bit of uh, a little rebellious, um, but somebody that was very relatable because he was kind of a little shy. You know, I mean, his relationship with Maggie and the way that they sort of grew together. Um, I think he's probably the closest. You know, because. Like with with Daryl, I couldn't, you know, I mean, I couldn't imagine like hunting squirrel with a crossbow or um, any of that kind of stuff. So, oh, I do have something else here, though. Hold on. I love these surprises. Yeah. Ew, well, this that. one, this one might make you a little sad, though. Oh, oh no. no, I have a feeling I know what it is. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I, wow. To see it sitting, sitting on a thing like that, too. Wait, hold on. There we go. <laughs> right in the <laughs> Very oh, accurate. Very effective. Sorry, Sorry. Stephen. <laughs> it really makes me happy that you keep all of this stuff. Is that is that a... Is that something that most most people in your field do, or are there situations where I don't know they get locked away in a studio vault, they they go in the trash, they get recycled? Yeah, I mean it's it's I think I think a lot of people that do what I do, they, they are fans. They started off, you know, with a love of monster movies and things. So I I you know I feel like it's part of my responsibility. Plus it's it's work that I've done that I'm, that I'm very proud of. So, you know, I, I have a collection of stuff at my house that I've was either given or acquired or traded for, um, over the last, I don't know how many decades, but, you know, I have George Romero's original viewfinder that he would use to set up his shots, uh, on all, and I thought I was looking at it the other day. I'm like, why am I not using this? I should take it to set a creep show, and I should use it because it's what George used um, to decide what size. So I really, I, you know, I'd love collecting props, and and I think even now more so than ever, 
with less and less practical props being built, there's less of it out there. You know, there's not as many things that you can keep, like, that you really love. Hold on. I think this might still work. Yes. Hold on. Let me see if I can remember where the switch is. This guy, which was... This is the gauntlet from the Predator that is literally sitting on my shelf. Oh, there it is. I don't know if I can see it, though. But, yeah, we would we would turn the lights on and off on these. and um, But I kind of think it's cool. Like, there's the little bomb in the Predator that he would blow up, the bad guy. What's the, what's the coolest thing you've ever traded something for? Um, oh, well, actually, I'm working on something right now uh, that I'm restoring. So I got a hold of, you know, when they did the howling, uh, Rob Bottin built this full-size werewolf puppet. And ooh, that doesn't, doesn't smell good. I think the battery's bad. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, Rob Bottin built this full-size werewolf puppet. And if you go online and you type in the howling werewolf rod puppet, there's there's a couple photos of these two guys working in their in their uh, driveway laying fur on this gigantic werewolf puppet. And it's kind of one of those pictures that when, when we were all younger, we would look at that picture and be like, oh my God, look how cool it is. So I recently, a friend of mine said, I think I found the original puppet. So I have it out in the studio. So when I come in here in the mornings, I'm actually using archival techniques to restore the puppet so that I can stand them back up and recreate that photo. But it's, you know, one of the greatest werewolf movies. And again, that movie kind of changed um, cinema, you know, genre cinema, because that was one of the first transformations where you saw the faces changing and growing between that and American Wolf in London. So I like being able to sort of, I feel like those things need to be preserved and I would, hate for it to end up in someone's garage and then after a while they just go eh, and they throw it away. I feel like the werewolf transformation is one of these really well-known like benchmarks of practical effects that are really hard to pull off but seems really rewarding. Are there other effects that you know you're in for a tough time if you're going to do that one? Uh, well, old age makeups are always tough because unlike werewolf transformations like old age you know you see people all the time you walk down the street and you know exactly what uh an old person would look like so that's why i think old age makeups are so so challenging and you know you could probably name on you know under 10 movies that i can say where the old age makeups were were so amazing that you couldn't tell you know, I mean, Dick Smith, you know, in, in The Exorcist and Amadeus and things like that. But, you know, there's just something about doing old age makeups that's always, always challenging. And that's what I why I think people love to do it. 
So we were talking about this on a previous episode of The Witching Hour, and with you having had so much experience on Walking Dead, I'm curious to get your take on it, because a zombie movie is essentially a pandemic movie. So how do you envision what's happening right now, changing the course for the genre and what kind of horror movies we get in the future? <clears throat> oh, well, that's I mean, I've been thinking a lot about that. Because, you know, there's going to be, I think it's weird even now, you know, when you turn on the TV, the movies that they're playing, they're all pandemic end of the world movies. <laughs> like, like, you know, War of the Worlds was on, the Spielberg version of War of the Worlds was on last night. And I'm like, yeah, that's an end of the world movie. And then there was something else on the other day that I was watching. And I, and I wasn't even thinking about the fact that people that work at HBO and stars and epics and whatever they're literally programming end of the world movies for us to watch. I'm not sure what they're trying to tell us, but um, I'm very, I'm very curious. Listen, the good part about this, if you can find a good part, which it's a little hard to, is that there's a lot of writers that are stuck in their houses um, with, uh, with no, um, no reason not to be able to sit down and, and start writing some great scripts. You know, I mean, I've talked to a couple of writers uh, and we've been sort of brainstorming some ideas and talking about, and everyone's like, yeah, now's the time. Like we should be developing stories and we should come up with. So I'm sitting down with a couple of people and sort of brainstorming some, some crazy fun stuff, but I don't know what, I don't know what a horror movie is going to look like. I, I have a feeling you know, I'm sure there's going to be a whole bunch of very small um, films that that involve two or three characters, and um, but I don't know like what people are going to find scary now. You know, I joked around that like I don't remember there ever being an episode of Walking Dead where Daryl goes down the toilet paper aisle uh, <laughs> and grabs a bunch of toilet paper, and we've shot in grocery stores and the one I've, I'm telling you, I've directed five episodes where they've gone looting and they're always looking for food and they're always looking for batteries and they're always looking for weapons. Never once does anyone go, I'll get toilet paper. Sounds good. Toilet paper and toothpaste. I think people should be paying more attention to those two things. Yeah. Well, you've never seen anybody go to the bathroom or brush your teeth on the walking dead. So there you go. <laughs> it's like survivor. <laughs> So true. Um, something I was going to ask you about earlier, I forget what it was jumping off of, but I would be curious to get your opinion on your type of work being honored at the Oscars, because right now we, we have the visual effects category, we have the hair and makeup category, but it almost feels like there's something missing in between, like an opportunity for more genre films and, and maybe even creature work from your perspective or the, the physical performance perspective, like a creature actor getting honored yeah. for their work. So I don't know. What, what do you think is missing there that needs to be filled? Well, you know, they do that in the Emmys. Like with the Emmys, there's a non-prosthetic and a prosthetic category. Um, but with the Oscars, I think it's, you know, they did have a special effects makeup category for a while because Rick Baker won the first award for American Wealth in London. I think Chris Wallace uh, won. But I think nowadays they're, they're really looking for sort of just like what is the one film that that 
exemplifies the use of makeup um, to change a character's look. I know Bombshell won last year, and I'm telling you, you know, you don't know that Charlize Theron when you're watching that movie. The makeup is so good that you sit there looking at it going, wait a minute, you know, and I know Gary Oldman, um, you know, there's so many, there's so many moments where prosthetics allow an actor to become somebody else. You know, Eddie Murphy was always so great at it, Nutty Professor, when he he became someone else. So I think I think with the Oscars, it really is sort of that one achievement in the course of that year that exemplifies the use of makeup. And, you know, in a lot of instances, it's period movies because of the period hairstyles and period this and that. But, um, you know, it, it's been nice that prosthetics have been a part of that. And uh, every year, you know, when they whittle down the number of um, the number of uh, potential nominees, you know, they have what's called the bake off. And then the people get, you know, they get to present their case to, um, you know, to other makeup artists. But I don't I don't you know, I mean, I think that the the category is pretty well represented with the Oscars, you know, the Emmys. I think it's different. And I know that in terms of like the performers, the people that wear that, wear the suits and play the parts, you know, there's a guy named Kerry Jones who, uh, who's works here at KMB and he does a lot of suit work. And listen, on Walking Dead, every single person on the makeup effects crew has played numerous zombies um, because it's easier. We got molds on them. So, you know, when we did the Winslow character a couple seasons ago, that was played by a guy named Gino Crognali, who was one of the guys on the makeup crew. I also know that they know what it takes to wear the suit and how exhausting it's going to be and the physical toll that it will take. So they're sort of, you know, in a lot of times better suited to, to do that. I think the big makeup blunder that is just ingrained in my brain for forever now is the shape of water. When that got overlooked... Oh. I just like yeah, I, you know, I couldn't compute it, that. Well, it's funny because there are, you know, there are unique rules that they have to abide by. And one of them is, is that they don't want uh, shows that are augmented digitally. Um, and I think because, you know, listen, I mean, you know, Mike Hill and the guys that, that actually built that suit did an amazing job. But because the eyes were digital and the blink was augmented, I do feel that that's uh, ultimately ends up being a bit of a gray area with with makeup artists because you have to sit back and go, was that makeup or is it a visual effect or what what exactly is it? And I know, for example, when they do these sort of bake-offs and they determine who's going to get the final nomination, they really don't want to see makeups that have been digitally augmented because they want it to be um, solely the accomplishment of the makeup artist and the hairstylist. Fair. <laughs> but, but listen, that's not to say that there's hasn't been um, hundreds and hundreds of films that had been worthy of a nomination that didn't. And, you know, you always get the, the snubs and the, you know, you know, we, we uh, are, we worked on Suicide Squad and one of the, you know, we 
that film won an Academy Award for Best Makeup. And the makeup artist that won was a guy that we had brought in to apply the killer croc makeup. But, you know, they look at the overall, you know, like the straight makeup, all the hair, all the styles, all the tattoos, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. So Perry asked you your thoughts on sort of how you think the pandemic will shape storytelling and horror. But I'm curious more on the practical level. You said you're back in the office. You guys are cleaning up. What are the what are the types of conversations you're having right now as the industry looks towards a hopeful, you know, ability to go back to filming? <clears throat> well, listen, I mean, the big the biggest challenge is going to be with makeup people because makeup people are in close proximity with the actors they have to touch the actors' faces, you know, on The Walking Dead up until a couple months ago, we were putting contact lenses and dentures into all the zombie performers. And, you know, we're talking about how to move forward from all of that, how to how to create um, the least amount of um, of uh, exposure to people, you know, and that's. I, it's going to be hard. You know I mean? I, I think for me, the biggest unknown is going to be on a day when you go to work, what's it going to be like when you walk in the studio, do you have to take your temperature? Everybody's got to wear masks, you know, and then you have a scene of two actors, you know, and they have to take their masks off. And then the number of people on a movie set, which is usually around a hundred or, you know, could be up to, you know, 150, you're probably going to narrow those numbers down significantly because you don't want to expose people. So instead of having a hundred people, you're going to have 30 people. If you have 30 people, that means there's less people to move lights and less people to move cameras, which means you're going to move slower. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions and in, in an industry that, you know, I want to make sure it's still fun and that it doesn't end up being so tedious that you're like, Oh, well, this scene should have taken three hours to shoot, but it's going to take us a day because we have to move slower. And, you know, there's it's just nobody really, you know, I mean, there's all these task forces and people are sort of getting together to talk about, you know, like how we move forward and how we protect the actors and how we protect the crew. Um, but all those all those precautions are going to add time, which means it's going to take more time to make to make stuff. And in a business where everybody's doing this, looking at their watch, it's I, I'm very curious as to how that's all going to look. Yeah, it's fascinating. I hadn't even considered. Obviously, makeup is right up in there. I didn't even. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. Listen, I mean, I was telling, I was telling a friend of mine today that if you want to have a snack on set or you're working, you have to bring your own cooler with your own stuff in it. You can't go to the coffee machine. You can't go to the cooler and grab a soda or a bottle of water everything you know you have to you have to be sort of isolated in terms of your own exposure and you know when they're saying things like oh you know you can't go to places where people congregate uh like a cafeteria you know like when you go to when you're gonna eat lunch on movie sets i'll be surprised if they even break for lunch because there's this thing called french hours where you work, you shoot for a certain amount of time and then you just send everybody home and they break when they can. I'll be surprised if we break for lunch. I'll be surprised if they don't work out a situation where like, okay, you can film for 10 hours and then you got to send everybody home because you can't have somebody serving you food on a plate. 
you got to go and you got to serve yourself, but you can't touch the same utensils that somebody else would touch. Right. It's crazy how there's, there's no easy answer. Cause as you were explaining that, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. It's probably better off for everybody to bring their own food and stuff anyway. But then all of a sudden you cut out the jobs for a major part of the industry in the craft service department. So, yeah. Listen, we, the last day uh, before we paused uh, on creep show, it was March 14th. I was in Georgia. And when we broke for lunch, the, the catering people were putting the food on everyone's plates. And I remember you, I got in line and I went to grab one of the spoons and they're like, you can't touch the spoon because the people, the food service people that had gloves on, they, this was before people were even wearing masks. Our line producer basically said, okay, you, you know, we're going to have them spoon the food onto your plate. You can't even touch it. And I was like, really? And now that's going to be the way it's, that's going to be the way it's going to be for a long, long time. if not forever. Um, before we wind this down with our final uh, two traditional questions, Haley, did you have anything else you wanted to throw in? I do actually. I had a uh, <laughs> of course, because the resume. Is- I know it's crazy. Um, mine's more recent, though. I was so uh, blown away and moved by Watchmen last year. Could you talk a little bit about what you did on that and what it was like to see the response to that show? Oh well, you know, Nikki Cassell and Damon Lindelof. You know, they're. I was really honored. You know, we we ended up uh, getting the job sort of through one of the line producers and uh, you know they called the initial phone call was okay we need you to make up about 10,000 squid about that big um was was the first piece of the of the puzzle but i read the script the first draft of this of the first episode and i was so blown away there's been very few times in my career that i've read something that was so profoundly moving um, and I thought that the first episode of Watchmen, the whole series was fantastic. I was really, really excited about that. You know, I mean, we knew that Dr. Manhattan was going to was going to ultimately come up and the discussions that we had about that and how we were going to accomplish that. And uh, it's it was just really, really a great, a great project. I was like you was Thank very you. moved by the show. And the uh, I, I had a feeling the little squids were part of the, part of what you did there. Yeah, I think the pilot we did that. And then the the Don Johnson body and um, a couple things, you know, I mean, anytime you get called for jobs like that, there's a lot of like cuts and bruises and like gashes and slit throats and dead bodies and that kind of stuff. But Watchmen overall, I, I was really proud to be a part of that uh, part of that show. So I have two questions for you. One is a little more serious. So I'll get that out of the way first. Okay. I covered the walking dead nonstop and I was constantly inundated with like the really extreme fan response, whether it was positive or negative. So I'm curious Oof. when you hear really heated responses to some of the material, how does that shape what you do, especially because you serve in a variety of capacities on the show. So when you hear stuff like that, what do you kind of take back to the group and say, now we're going to do this instead? Um, listen, to be really honest, you know, the Glenn and Abraham episode was, it was rough. I mean, 
it was rough emotionally for me because I remember reading the comic book and seeing Glenn killed in the comic book. And I was really disturbed by how senseless it felt in the comic book. Like he just, guy just says, eeny, meeny, miny, mo," And then he was gone and it really bothered me. So when the, that moment came up in the show and I was really tight with Michael Cudlitz and really tight with Steven Yun. And I knew that that was going to land on my shoulders to direct that episode. Um, I, uh, you know, I went in and I did, I directed the best episode that I could direct knowing that I was breaking, uh, breaking people's hearts and, and really sort of walking right on that line. But, you know, part of what the show really, uh, is about in this iteration of the show, it really is about that senseless, that senseless, one minute they're there, the next minute they can be gone. Um, so it's it's hard because I read a lot of great stuff about it and I've read a lot of terrible stuff about it. And I would say there are times when I agree with some of the things that are said and we've had those conversations. There were things that came up that we had a conversation. I said, Mark my word, someone's going to publish an article about that. And then the episode airs and there's an article and it's right there. And, uh, and, I, and, it, and it's, it's a little frustrating sometimes. But in other instances, there have been things that I vehemently disagreed with. Um, you know, like in the, in the original comic book, when Shane dies in season two, Carl's the one that shoots Shane. And... Um, when we did the comic, when we did the, the TV show, I remember it wasn't Carl that shot Shane. And I remember having a conversation with Robert Kirkman and saying, dude, I remember, I remember that moment that, that it was Carl, this little kid who had the gun who ended up shooting Shane. Um, so there have been times when I have kind of, uh, I've pushed back against some things and, and a lot of times, yeah, it works great. And other times it's like, yeah, that's not you know, like when when Rick cut Negan's throat, uh, I directed that episode, and I had said to Scott Gimple, the showrunner, I think Maggie should shoot him. I think Maggie Maggie should either kill Negan or shoot Negan or do something because she's right there. I said it's really hard. It was really a hard moment to shoot, knowing that Maggie collapses to her knees because Rick spares Negan's life. That was really, and I sort of had pitched this idea to Gimple. I'm like, why doesn't Maggie shoot him? Why doesn't Maggie kill him? Um, and, you know, obviously Negan's character had more, more of a journey and there was a lot more going on. But, you know, the, the episode where Rick shows up in front of the sanctuary with all the cars and they're all shooting and nobody shot anybody. I kept saying, can Negan get shot in the leg? Can he get shot in the arm? I mean, it, you have a hundred people there and none of them actually shot anybody. And uh, I really, I was sort of, even Jeffrey was like, come on, man, give me a bullet hole in the shoulder or in the leg or something. And I'm like, I would love to shoot you. Andy was like, can I just shoot him? I'm like, yeah, we should. He should get shot. And but um, and I, when we were shooting that episode, I went, I'm gonna never. I'm, I know I'm gonna hear about it, 
I'm going to hear about today at an army of like a hundred people outside the sanctuary. Not one of them actually hit anybody. And we did, but you know, but listen, the good news is the great news is, you know, the show's, the show's really um, in a great place. You know, I think uh, Angela's done an unbelievable job. And I think that, you know, with Samantha and Brian and, all of the actors, you know, with Jeffrey and Melissa and Norman and Elsie and everybody, you know, it really, it really, last two seasons have been really, really fun. And the storytelling has just become adrenalized. Um, we don't take, you know, we don't take a long time to sort of get to it. You know, the stories really, really move. And I think Angela's done a great job. So my other project question for you, just because it's another movie that I'm obsessed with. It's not as high up on the list as Scream, but I watch The Faculty nonstop. Uh, (laughs) I think I think it might be time for another The Faculty. Listen, I I had a blast working on that movie. We really had so much fun. I mean, if you go back, you look at the cast. You look at what, you know, Robert was at the height of what he was, what he was doing and Kevin Williamson and, you know, all the, you know, we ended up building tons of stuff in that movie. And it was so much fun. Um, Even knowing that some of the stuff that we were going to build was going to be replaced with visual effects or we were, that was probably one of the first times where we, had done a lot of work that was there really to sort of aid the animators, like, you know, the little worms swimming in the, in the tank and then the ten, tentacles coming out and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we had a really, really good time on that movie. There was, they, they shot at a, at an, a, an old a school for the deaf in Austin, Texas. And we put this giant quarter scale creature in the swimming pool and I have photos of, of all of us puppeteering the tentacles uh, in a swimming pool. Like we'd go to work and we'd jump in the pool and we'd be in the pool all day. It was so it was so much fun. And, and uh, I had a great time in that movie. I think that movie's really underrated too, I would really I say. Agree. You're right. We should they should reintroduce that movie for sure. Yeah. I I still think the the one you guys made holds up, but I mean, that's that's obviously a brilliant concept that we can keep revisiting. So why not do it again and continue to use the blueprints that you guys made in that one? Yeah, I I don't know what happened, why that movie didn't really hit the right uh, the right mark, because I thought the movie was great. I thought the actors, you know, Elijah Wood was fantastic and um, Robert Patrick and God, everybody was in that movie. It was great. Really was. Uh, I, have to, I lied. I have to say one more thing. Or it doesn't have to be a long discussion, but I have noticed I have always had a huge soft spot in my heart for the 13 Ghosts remake you guys did. And it has some of the coolest creature creations and ghost designs. And I've noticed a lot of people on Twitter having the same opinion. So I'm ready. For people like- love that movie. People yeah. love, you know, it's funny. I just watched it again last week with my kids because I was like, no. I, I really remember liking that movie a lot. It was just really inventive and it was kind of outrageous and wild. And, you know, the director, Steve Beck, who was a, a visual effects guy from ILM, I think, um, he came down and he, he knew exactly what he wanted. He had had a, 
couple of those characters, a lot of those characters had already been designed. Um, but I remember it just being a really interesting, imaginative, just different take on things. And the one scene where the lawyer gets cut in half by the, by the glass and then the glass slides away and you see like the insides of like his skull. I remember that sculpture, like we kept that mold for years because I thought it was just so neat to go, oh, there's like a cross section of his human body and you'd hold that up and we just slid the face down. Um, but there's, there's some really good, there's some really good stuff in that movie. It's, I would have to say, I don't necessarily think it holds up as well as I had remembered. Um, I would be, you know, they should make that movie again. I feel like you could, be, you could be like, I don't, I don't know about a doctor, but some sort of like sciencey biology ish kind of thing. Just sure. because you probably know every single detail of the human body from having like sliced and diced all over the place. Well, you know, I was pre med before I got hired by George Romero. Makes so much sense now. And and they had actually. <laughs> I think on Day of the Dead, there was a scene where an act, a character gets his arm, he gets bit by a zombie, and they chop the arm off, and I get called this frantic call to set, and I go to set, and it's George Romero going, hey, so should we, can we just cauterize the wound? And I said, well, you need to tie off the blood vessel. You got to tie it off first, and then you can cauterize it. So I realized that I was like literally the, um, I was the de facto medical advisor. <laughs> um, for Day of the Dead. But wait, I have to, we have to go walk into the other room. Let me, oh, yes, up. please. Yes. All right, hold on. I got to spin. Let me see if I can flip you. All right, there, I've flipped you. Uh -huh. Oh, there's my zombie. That's my zombie head for, that that gets cut off in Walking Dead. That's the first. No. First. Uh, oh, look, there's. Huh. <laughs> oh, and there, look, there's, there's the blood bag. Oh, wow. And the rubber bag. Okay, I'm going down the hall now. Weirdly empty. Right. All right. Ooh. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> All right, so this really makes me sad. But, like, look how big, like. Ooh. Wow. How long did that take to make? This was not, it did not take very long. I'll be. I'll be honest. Wow. But it's, I mean, it's like, that's a, that's a six foot table that it's sitting on. That's so cool. So what else, what else do we have around here? <laughs> uh, there's, there's Alpha's head. I feel like this could be a great guessing game where everybody, like, you have to guess whose head everyone belongs to in there. Yep, that's right. All right, here, hold on. Oh, man. Wow. Well, there's Predator. Boy, you have a fun office. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> huh. Oh, wow. There's one of our werewolves. <laughs> oh, so we have. my God. Oh, here, hold on. Who's the buff? Hey! Oh. <laughs> that face. Very hold on. There you go. <laughs> he doesn't have a shirt on though. <laughs> oh, and then there's T Dog. Oh, T Dog. <laughs> and then there's, there's Noah. Oh, wow. 
Oh, that was when he was God. in the revolving door. <laughs> All right, what else? <laughs> what else do I have? Uh, I think that's it until we go out into the shop. Oh, wow. Anyway. This is like the best possible virtual tour everyone could no, be getting right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then there's the Scarecrow oh. from Creepshow. Do you do you go all out for Halloween decorating or you do you feel like you I do? do. I do, but I'm always but I'm always working. Right. Yeah, it is a busy time, I imagine. Yeah. All right, I'm running back down the hallway now. <laughs> I can oh wait, you have to see the other side of my office. So yes, that's please. that's the that was the good side that you saw. <laughs> but if you go, hold on, I need to find there's the other side. <laughs> That's awesome. That was a quickie tour. <laughs> a very, a, a very impressive uh, group of company you have in there right now. <laughs> oh, thanks. thanks. <laughs> so we always end the witching hour with two very specific questions. Haley, I'll let you pick which one to go with first. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I like. Yeah, you know what I like to save for last. So I will say, uh, you know, we always ask if there's any movies, TV shows, books, comic books, video games, whatever it is you like that you've you've seen or played or read in genre right now that you want people to go out and see, read, play for themselves. Well, I I just watched Kingdom on Netflix. And it's kind of interesting because you would think that I've had my fill of zombies. (laughs) But uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it was a great story. It was just very different. I liked that they played with the rules of the zombie genre and the mythology a little bit. Uh, it's two seasons, 12 episodes. So I really liked it. Really liked it a lot. Yeah, I'll co-sign that one. That's a really cool show. And I don't, I, there aren't a lot of like uh, period piece zombie movies out there. No, and that, I mean, the story was so was so compelling in in that show that I really was dying to see what was going to happen next. It was really it was really just the pacing was good, the storytelling was good, the characters were good. It just came out of the gate uh was great. Now that I finished into the night, maybe I'll go over there next. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> so This last question is something that we've noticed because it seems like genre filmmakers and pets happen to go hand in hand. So do you yourself have any pets? I do. I have two dogs um, and they're loving this stay at home order like nobody's business. Like they don't leave my, you know, because I've been in Georgia for almost 11 years on and off working on The Walking Dead. So when I'm at the house... My kids get pissed because the dogs won't leave my side. They follow me around. The minute that I sit down on the couch, one of them jumps on my lap and the other one jumps next to my head and they won't leave my side. So I I keep telling my family, I'm like, guys, when I go back to work, you guys will be fine. The dogs will have no concept as to where the hell I went. They're not going to understand. What are their names? Aggie and Pandora. So, <laughs> makes me so I know and I think yeah. I think my daughter and I have my daughter Alyssa and I have a joke that if she doesn't say they're so cute like 70 times a day <laughs> then 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 there's a problem 
I have more pictures on my phone of my dogs than I do my kids, probably. But don't tell my kids that. That would be ter- I would be a terrible you're, dad. You're uh, saying that to the right people. That means we only have about 30 seconds before this goes off. You were kind enough to spend extra time with us and walk us through your whole shop there. We have to let you go now. Greg, thank you so much for your time today. And again, huge congratulations on great show. It it really did delight me to no end. For everybody out there that has not watched it, what are you waiting for? It's streaming right now on Shudder. But if you want to own it, again, it's going to be available on DVD and DVD Blu-ray Steelbook on June 2nd. And that's going to give you the opportunity to dive into a whole bunch of super cool special features. So you do not want to miss that. Go check it out. Thank you. That's it. We're done. You have officially survived the witching hour. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save 25 bucks. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831 Does anybody want breakfast? Guys, let's go. I'm leaving for McDonald's in five seconds. Why do you start with that? The Breakfast Stampede Meal. It's only at McDonald's, where there's a meal for every morning. And nothing says morning like a classic sausage McMuffin with egg. Right now, get this all-time favorite for just two bucks on the one, two, three dollar menu. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.